Welcome to Apply Filters, the podcast all about WordPress development. I'm your host, Brad Tunar, and joining me as usual is my co-host, Pippin Williamson. Hi, everybody. This is episode 16, and in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about what we've been working on recently and, uh, and some cachings, lots of stuff about caching. So do you want to start us off, Pippin? Sure. Why don't we start by mentioning our sponsorship for the episode? Uh, Sammy from Foxnet Themes was kind enough to sponsor an episode. Uh, Sammy does some really great work over at foxnet-themes.fl. If you just search Foxnet Themes in Google, you'll find him. He's got some great themes up for sale. Uh, He also released a a nice little blog article recently about his experience becoming a theme author for WordPress.com. WordPress.com tends to have some extra special requirements, things you can or can't do, uh, and so he went through some of those requirements, really explaining how it wasn't that hard to become an author on WordPress.com, which, so if that's something that you're interested in, definitely go check it out. Cool. So that's foxnet-themes.fi, right? Oh, fi, sorry. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, yeah. it's fl? When did that happen? <laughs> I can't read. Yeah, so, so definitely thanks for Sam, to Sammy for sponsoring the episode and go check him out. Yeah, you're awesome, Sammy. So Brad, Brad, what have you been working on lately? Uh, so uh, a little while ago, I um, I read this article uh, from Theme Foundry about you know how they sped up their site using Nginx and Speedy and and how they got their SSL rating up and stuff. And so it kind of prompted me to upgrade my SSL system. I'd been using this old server uh, called Pound. It's, I think, ancient. And uh, Nginx is far superior. So I, given it's kind of cutting my teeth on, on Nginx for the first time. Anyway, uh, I checked my SSL rating, and my, mine was a C. Uh, for deliciousbrains.com, and, and that was largely because of the configuration of of Pound. Uh, so I replaced Pound and uh, did some tweaking to the to the Nginx uh, configuration, and managed to get my SSL rating up to A plus. So that's, that was pretty cool. That was um, cool. And and one that's, of the th- that's one a th- whole level of server side things that I've never even dived into. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's kind of fun. I find it fun, but some people hate servers. I think Brad Brad Williams is on record. I wish I could run a website without servers or something. <laughs> I, I have mixed feelings. I, I love servers in terms of like getting in and understanding how they work and learning how to really fine tune them and things like that is really awesome. But when it comes to my business or anything like that, I just want my server to run. I don't want to touch it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think it's kind it's, of like my mentality with Linux and like things like OSX. Like when I just want to get work done, I just want my laptop to be there, running OSX to just work. But when I really just want to go have fun and tinker around, I want my Linux box to go do whatever I want on it. Yeah. And if I want to rip the kernel out, I rip the kernel out. Yeah. I think that's I've, kind of my how I feel about servers. Yeah. I, I've gotten more into performance and like tweaking stuff uh, since I started running an e-commerce website because I've I've found uh, you know a fair amount of research that suggests your you know the speed of your website is directly related to your conversion rate <laughs> so yeah, me- tons meaning, of studies that show that yeah meaning if your site is slow people will buy less right 
Yep. Uh, so uh, that's why I've, you know, kind of taken this to the next level, I guess. But also because I'm really interested in it. So um, what one of the coolest things I found out, actually, is that there's this HTTP header that you can send back in, in your response. Uh, it's called the strict transport security uh, header. And uh, you just have to send that back. And it basically tells the browser that any future requests to your domain name should be over HTTPS. So the next time you type in HTTP colon slash slash deliciousbrain.com, the browser will automatically detect, oh, I got that header last time saying it's always HTTPS for this domain, and it automatically switches it. So there's, like, there's no redirect first, which is pretty cool. I had no idea about that until I dove into this. I feel like, if, I feel like that could have a substantial performance impact in terms of the time it takes to load that initial page yeah. just by removing that redirect from HTTP to HTTPS. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, That's pretty wicked. So, so what have you been working on? Uh, my last week or so have been... Getting, doing a lot of development on Affiliate WP, which is the affiliate plugin I've been working on for the last two months or so. It, I finally got kind of over a hurdle and got to a point where uh, I've got the plugin is mostly functioning. I can actually start using it. If I wanted, I could throw it up on a live site and actually start using it. So now it's doing a lot of the the fine tuning, the, the the little fun pieces here and there. Uh, but recently, I've been doing two things. Number one, I've been testing it on a whole bunch of different hosting environments. Um, one of the issues that a lot of affiliate plugins have, at least affiliate plugins that are built directly into WordPress, uh, and this also goes for e-commerce plugins as well, uh, is that when you put really aggressive caching in place on your site, which this also leads into our caching discussion here in a little bit, uh, things tend to break and don't work as well. So like you may have a referral link that uh, resulted in a successful conversion, but for whatever reason, it doesn't actually track the referral um, or doesn't successfully track it. And so what I've been doing is testing the plugin on all of the different managed WordPress hosts, which generally have more aggressive caching than, than say, your your standard shared host or some others. Um, what, and are, then the, what are you using? What, that? What, what are you using for like a, an endpoint? To, to make that request to track that 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 conversion, right? it's all that, in JavaScript. Yeah, I know, but like you're you have a WordPress endpoint too, right? Where where the JavaScript is hitting, you know, some WordPress endpoint to make that just admin admin AJAX. Oh, so you are that's okay. So then that's really surprising to me that that would be aggressively cached because those should be off limits, right? Those AJAX. No, admin admin AJAX is usually really reliable. Yeah. Um, but so what happens is, so the way that I've set it up is that when you, let's say that you you load a referral, a, a URL that has a referral in it, um, that will actually trigger an a that will trigger a an AJAX request from the JavaScript to admin AJAX. At which point, that's where all of your referral data gets stored. Right. Um, and so I've been testing that on all the different managed WordPress hosts as well as some others uh, because they tend to have things uh, more more aggressive page caching, more aggressive object caching, et cetera, um, and to make sure that it still works. And so far, it's working really, really great, which makes me happy. Uh, and then I've been... The other part of that is building my integrations between Affiliate WP and all of the WordPress e-commerce plugins. Right. So 
out of the box, for example, like if you if you sell through e easy digital downloads, it'll work for that. It'll allow you to track those com conversions. If you use WooCommerce or use WP Commerce or use Shop, JigoShop or any any of the e-commerce plugins, build in all of those integrations. Cool. Are you having fun with this project? I'm having lots of fun with it right now. Cool. Uh, it, my first two months working on it were not very fun because it was kind of just the idea I was going to build it, but I didn't really have an architecture in mind. I hadn't got to the point where I was starting to, to really actually see it come together. And in the last week, I got to where it's really actually coming together. It's a functioning plugin. It, ha it has all these different features. Um, and so now it's definitely, I have to, a lot of times I have to tell myself not to work on it because I have to do other things. Cool. Um, I forgot to mention that one thing that I found out recently is that there's, uh, that you can actually get statistics on your wordpress.org plugin pages from Google, I've seen that. from Google webmaster tools of all places. So, so the reason Isn't I'm that getting tied to the, uh, the Google plus profile. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, if you, um, if you add your Google Plus profile to your WordPress.org profile, it kind of links the two, and uh, you're, you know, it basically confirms you as an author of those plugins on WordPress.org. And so, Web Google Webmaster Tools then gives you because you know you've said I, I own these pages or I'm the author of these pages, it then gives you access to you know how many impressions those pages get. Which is so really do you cool. just add do you just add the plugin pages like you would add a normal site? Uh, in Google Webmaster Tools? No, there's a special process. There's um I'll link it up in the show notes. There's a special process you need to go through to become a verified author of those uh, WordPress.org pages. Um, right, because I've seen the process for adding them like adding your Google Plus profile. Yeah, but I mean, like in terms of getting them into Google Webmasters, that's the part I'm not familiar with. Oh no, no, no! They just showed up. That's why I was like, "What the heck is this?" Oh, okay. You know? So I've just never got my my authorship set up correctly. Pro possibly. I mean, the authorship huh. should should put your headshot next to your plugin pages in the search results as well, right? That's that's kind of why I did it initially, um, and because it's just cool to like claim ownership within the Google search results, right? Um, yep, clearly I do not have it set up because <laughs> I do not show up. But I have I, I do know what you're talking about with the the header. There's um, auto there's, wrote up a nice post on. Yeah, there's a tool that you can that you can kind of submit a certain you know, submit this page and it'll see, you know, it'll show you if you're a verified author on this or not. Um, cuz I'm not sure if it's always going to show a headshot next to your search result, uh, especially yeah. if you're the one logged in and searching. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, yeah, the, there's definitely some tools that you can use to, to get that done. We'll, we'll link it up in the show have notes. You found, so. Have you found, uh, that those stats show anything useful or interesting? Not, yes, actually. Cause I, so I've found that my Amazon plugin gets over double the number of impressions uh, than my Migrate DB Pro or Migrate DB, the free version, the, the plugin. Wow. Why? So, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I would have thought Migrate DB would be higher. So did I. <laughs> so did I. I and, and I really don't know like how reliable these stats are. Or, sure. Like, 
Yeah, like, take them with a grain of salt. But they are still definitely interesting to look at. Yeah, yeah. I, and I I don't know where they're coming from, to be honest. Like, is this is this because, you know, WordPress.org has Google Analytics stuck into their page? Or is this search? Is this from Google Search somehow tracking these stats? Like, I don't know. I, sus- I suspect it's WordPress.org has something. Yeah, that's probably what it is. Ugh. It was, I thought it was just a neat find because I had never seen this thing. So to, to be clear, uh, if you log into Google Webmaster Tools and you've already verified authorship, there's like a labs link in the sidebar. And if you expand that, there's an author stats link. And that's where that's where you find this, this gem. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I'll have to go check that out, see if I can get set up. Yeah. Um, have you, uh, how's your A-B testing going that we were talking about last time? It's, it's going pretty good. It's, um, I'm running a test right now uh, based on the size of my checkout screen. So I've seen speculation or maybe proof um, <laughs> that... <laughs> hard, hard to tell with the internet. <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen various articles that suggest that a skinnier checkout screen converts better than a wide one. Oh, interesting. Uh, so what I did is I set up an A-B test to take my checkout screen, and for 50% of the users, it gives them the standard width. So on a desktop, the EDD checkout screen is like 960 pixels wide, I think, which it's the same width as the site, sure. as a standard site page. And so then I set up a test so that 50% of people that go to the checkout screen get one that's 600 pixels wide, so everything is much smaller. Uh, and I wanted to see if that made any difference whatsoever. And I don't have enough data to be definitive yet, um, simply since the checkout screen is not the most hit page on the site. Like, it's not like the home page where you can build up thousands of hits in a short period of time. Uh, it's going to take a little bit longer to accumulate all of the data. Right. But so far, my the skinny version has given me a 24.3% improvement on conversion rates. That's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like, that's, that's insane. Yeah, try explain that one, somebody. <laughs> Honestly, I, I think it comes down, I mean, I, I like the statement about A-B testing that A-B testing makes the smartest people in the room look like idiots. Um, yeah. Because I think it's really true. Be- My only explanation is simply that uh, a skinnier screen is easier to, f- to flow down without getting distracted. Sure. I could see that, yeah. Uh, and, I mean, whether there's any truth to that or not, I mean, that's purely speculation for myself. I have no, nothing so you to heard back it, it up. But you heard it here, folks. Make all your websites phone with, even on desktop. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be really interested to know, like, does does assuming that this is a standard... Um, result that most people would see for checkout screens like does that apply to other parts of a website as well maybe i have no idea i bet you're reading uh, i bet you're reading it does because i always prefer when it's a nice like tight column you don't you don't want to read a page that's 200 i mean 2400 pixels wide yeah exactly you're like you want to read a page that's that's maybe 600 or 700 well, I think as you like, when you read one line, it's like the sense of accomplishment, like like instant sense of accomplishment. Sure. If you if you if it takes you like 
you know, three quarters of a second to read a line because it's like for well, you, you also have to take into account um, <laughs> like the way that people who read really, really fast do. Right. Uh, I didn't know this for a long time, but uh, my dad actually showed this to me. He can he can read a page in like an amazing amount of time. Right. Uh, but it turns out it's because the way that he reads, he reads with both eyes at once, and he literally just scans down the page. He doesn't go left to right. Right. He reads an entire line at a time, and he just go and he goes down the line. So basically, you, his eyes are focusing on two points of the page, just going down the page. Right. Um, whereas most people, when they read, read left to right. They'll read a line, they move down. They read a line, they move down, etc. Um, and so with a skinnier page, it's much easier to go straight down without going side to side. Right. Yeah, you don't want to be reading one line, like. <laughs> That's why reading on my phone is awesome. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoy it as well. It takes some getting used to, but I've I really enjoy it now. But I, like, I can read an article so much faster on my phone than I can on my desktop. Yeah, I do most of my reading. Like, I send everything to Instapaper, uh, and and uh, and I read it on my phone. Like later in the day, that's the way I I operate. Nice. Um, do you use that Instapaper or readability or one of those things? I I never have. Oh yeah, yeah. Nope, They're pr- never have. Yeah, well, that it's funny because I always see people like, like they'll tw- they'll be tweeting about an article that just came out, and I'm like, I don't I don't have time to read that thing yet. It's in my Insta paper. <laughs> you know? Nice. So, like, have you been? Uh, I think you mentioned that you might have been doing some A/B testing as well. What'd you find? Well, yeah, you challenged me last week. You challenged me to That's right. Duel. Yeah. How'd your results come out? <laughs> you got something to share? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, first of all, I went with Google Analytics instead of doing it the easy way. <laughs> I chose the hardest way possible, um, which which actually just turned out to be it actually just turned out to be a lot of reading th- and sifting through Google's Docs, which are not very good, and trying to figure out like how to like what code to add to my site that that will pull this off and uh the you know the code in the end was actually very little very little um and uh, it was kind of nice to be able to write my own javascript to change the the page according to which test it is right sure um so i set up a variable that you can use in your javascript that like this is version a this is version b uh yeah, it's actually a little simpler than that, actually. You just drop in uh, this kind of, like, you set up the experiment in Google Analytics, like, you click through, and it gives you this experiment ID, and uh, you drop that in, and then you call a, a function after uh, you drop that ID in. Um, and this all happens before you your Google Analytics code. Uh, so, so you drop this ID in, and it, it includes this JavaScript, and then you, you make this call to this choose variation function and it returns a zero, uh, in my case, it'd be a zero, one, or a two. So, and, sure. and that, cho- that depending on which one of those, then I change things on the page, right? Right, that makes sense. So, so that, like as an example, so what, if zero came back, I would change nothing, right? That's the, the original version. That's of gonna the page. be, yeah, that's gonna be your default. And then if one came back, I would remove the links in the header. So 
So if you clicked on the home link, like the icon, it, nothing would happen. They wouldn't go to the home page. It would, you know, do nothing. Uh, and then the other links were just completely removed from my navigation bar. So they're gone. Uh, and then in if a two was uh, returned, I would remove the header completely. So the header bar is gone. And uh, so this is a little bit uh, interesting because it, it was kind of an ABC test, right? It was. Were uh, you only doing this on your checkout screen? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So the the idea is, do you by removing distractions, do you convert better? Exactly. That's that's the test what, that we're testing here. And uh, so my what was interesting is that so far the removed header completely is actually performing worse. So. 8% worse actually than the original with with the links but the one with the removed links and the bar is still there so so my I, the big thing with the bar is that the branding is still there when when the bar is completely gone I don't have any branding anymore so I think my like my my guess is that it's it's um, people are losing confidence in the site it looks almost broken maybe um, that's my guess but it Anyway, removing the links has increased conversions twenty percent. Uh, so that's that's impressive. Yeah, that's pretty good, right? <laughs> so I think I'll be doing that going forward. Is uh, removing those links. I'm going to keep the experiment go running for a little while longer until Google tells me that a winner has been announced. Because apparently they have some threshold that I have to hit before they actually declare a winner. Um, sure. But it, yeah, it's pretty cool. I was pretty happy with the the reporting and stuff in Google Analytics, um, and it was pretty easy to set up once I figured out how to do that. Um, so I, I might write a blog post just showing people how to do it in Google Analytics. Uh, I, I would be intrigued to see it. Um, but it, it sounds like once you have it set up, the the actual the ways that things are added or removed from the page and the, the way that you're looking at results is very similar to what Optimizely does. Um, oh. It's exactly the it's same, just I think. Yeah. I mean, like, like with, with Optimizely, I mean, you can you can also write up any custom JavaScript you want. Yeah. Um, and oh, really? You, you can, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they'll cool. give you a they can give you a panel that basically says write your JavaScript here that you want to run on this variation. Yeah. Uh, and but then there's also more of a visual editor where you can like select elements and say just remove this one for me or remove this one, and then they I assume they just write some JavaScript for you. Right. Huh. That's interesting. I also, I, I, I kind of got addicted to this whole thing, this A-B testing. It's pretty cool to see these results. It's fascinating. Yeah. And so I've actually added another one uh, in the meantime. And uh, I just changed the message on, like, the, the landing page for MyGreatDB uh -huh. Pro uh, to be a bit more uh, engaging and uh, seeing a little increase in, uh, in conversions well, there. What happens for you is, um, so like you change that message and you're seeing an increase. I did a similar experiment where I changed the wording of a button. And for the first two weeks, I saw a definite improvement. And then for like four weeks after that, it went straight downhill and substantial, it got substantially worse. That is so weird. <laughs> Which I have no, I mean, I have no explanation for whatsoever. I wonder if that I, has... I think it just goes to show that you have to accumulate enough data before you make a decision because right. you have there's a, the only thing that can give you a definitive answer is enough data. Right. I think it also I think you have to be careful 
what else is going on. So, and also, I think I'm, I don't think I'm testing the right thing here. So right here, I, I've changed, I've t- changed the wording on the landing page for MigrateDB Pro, and I'm testing conversions, which is way further down the funnel. Like they have to hit my pricing page and then click a button to get. So what what I really should be testing, I think, is if they proceed like does this affect my bounce rate like do people stick around the page longer because right. i've changed this message what i i i what i did was uh i looked at engagement um engagement slash clicks so like did, did this message encourage the person to click on the button or the button next to it more so than the other message right because it it's really difficult to say the button on the home page. I mean, what let's? It, I mean, it depends on where it is. You have to be careful about testing too far down. So just because you have something on the home page that improved initial engagement does not mean that that's going to improve conversion rates. I mean, it might, but that's very difficult to test because there's too many variables in between. Right, and you also have to be careful. Like, you're not. What other things you're changing on the site in the meantime? <laughs> right. So like, you, you also have to be careful about running multiple tests at the same time. Yes, yeah, that they because don't they conflict. Might be, they might be conflicting, or the uh, the better the message in ver- in A over here may be actually affecting the conversion rate of version B over here. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. It's pretty should cool, though. Should we it's get on stuff. to the? Yeah, it is. It's fun. Uh, should we get on to the main course here? Yeah, let's jump into caching. All right. Uh, so. So why why do we need to do caching in the first place? Like like who cares? Let's just run run our pages right off of the web server. And hey, it makes things a lot easier. <laughs> Way easier. Yeah. yeah. I Sim- I mean simply put, caching is for performance. If you get into anything that's on on a certain scale or complexity, you're going to run into performance issues. And one of the ways that we improve that is caching. Yeah. Um yeah, because I mean, it obviously goes beyond that, but I think that's a simple answer. Yeah. So as an example, like, so say uh, when you request the home page, uh, you know, your request goes through and hits the web server, and the web server then calls, uh, prepares a query that you know blows through the database and takes like two seconds to run or something crazy that slow. So then your page doesn't come back for like, you know maybe three or four seconds which is a really long time in terms of serving a page request right right um so there's an example where you want to put caching in there somewhere maybe maybe even like in a couple places (laughs) right right because if you have if if that page is is then cached depending on how it's cached maybe the first person that visits will generate the page and then another person will come along and since the page has been cached in such a way uh, the that visitor never actually touches the database. They don't ever do any of those queries or anything. They simply pull the page from cache and it's loaded instantaneously. Exactly. That's yeah. the more or less goal of it. Yeah. And I mean, if it, if it was that bad of a scenario that I just described, where it's taking like two seconds to run a SQL query, you probably have other problems on the site. <laughs> you you probably <laughs> want to look at something. I mean, it's possible though that that's a query that you do want to run. You know, now and then. Um, in that case, you might want to run it on a schedule and like, and right. then that's ca- where cross is going to come into hand. Yeah, 
Exactly. So, so what kind of – we've got several different kinds of caching. You want to walk us through some of the basic caching types? Yeah. So, well, they have pay, a full page cache. So the, that's the where, like, the whole page is cached uh, either, you know, as a static file on the server or more typically it's stored in memory. So the whole page is served up right from memory. So, and when you say the whole page, I mean, you, you mean the, the text, the images, the HTML, everything that is on that page every asset, every file, et cetera, right? No. <laughs> I just mean the source code of that page. The source that's, code. That's well, right, but... Yeah. Yeah, never mind, never mind. Yeah, yeah, the source so, code. The source code of the page, your, your assets are not necessarily going to be cached because they may be in an external location. Sure, yeah, you you may, you know, and but you could. You could, like, have your CSS and JS and stuff cached as well in, in memory, uh, if you want to serve those, right. but they are not faster. explicitly going to be included in the page cache unless you have inline. Yeah, exactly. So that's a good way, actually. Um, like, say, say if you just have like a single page for some reason, like a landing page that's getting a ton of traffic. Uh, if you want to load that page really quickly, maybe you want to dump your CSS right into the page, like right in line, uh, instead of instead of the page loading and then it having to make a second request to get that CSS. So that's, that's another way that you can kind of optimize things. Sure. Um, but anyway, another type of caching would be uh, application uh, level or uh, object cache is often called. Uh, and that's where you store uh, things in memory. So bits of data in memory that uh, is kind of part of the page or part of something that has to do with the page. Um, a typical example of that would be um, transients in WordPress, right? Um, if you have object caching turned on uh, using, uh, I think there's a few ways that you can turn that on. Uh, one is Mark Jaquist's uh, APC object cache plugin. Um, does W3Total Cache do that as well? I think it does. Yes, it does. Yeah. And... Uh, and so, yeah, you can turn that on. And so instead of, so transients are stored in the database. Uh, so, but instead of WordPress having to go fet, do an SQL query and run it against the database and get that data back and then finally do something with it, it stores it in memory. And so it's super fast to access the, that data. Um, and uh, we'll- I think an example, another example beyond transients, but maybe one that people will see uh, on a more data basis uh, is basically anything in the WordPress admin, like any of the list tables, whether it's post, pages, users, etc. If you're if the site has object caching enabled, when those pages are generated, those lists of users, those are coming out of object cache. Yeah. Not 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 the pages, but the data that's on the page. So the 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 list of users, all of the user objects, etc., are coming out of object cache, if, assuming they've been cached. Yeah. Exactly. Um... And and then I guess yeah well there's actually kind of two there's actually two kind of variations of of object cache as well there's there's the kind that persists between page requests and then there's the kind that only persists per request so uh, an example of that would be that I found out recently is the get plugins function um, that that actually crawls through your uh, your WordPress plugins directory opens up the, the PHP files and tries to find which ones are actually plugin files. 
um, that that uh, function actually uh, you know checks uh, each one of those files and uh, it it stores that in kind of a, in memory for that request but uh, in the uh, for future calls to that function it it grabs it from memory so it doesn't it doesn't have to do all that work again which is actually a lot of work um, so so be careful when you're calling get plugins function because <laughs> it uh, you know if if it's if you're calling it every request it's probably not a good idea <laughs> no um and what what's the law there's another type pippin do you want to cover that database caching yeah uh to be honest so this is something that this is a where my knowledge of caching starts to to dwindle a little bit <laughs> yeah database caching is pretty similar to object caching right you know what? I, I don't mean, have I don't have a lot of experience with database caching either. To be honest, um, I just I've always kind of assumed database caching is like caching your queries and anything that you run to the database. Yeah, it's either or it could actually. No, I'm I'm sorry. I, think, I know what it is. I I, th I think MySQL so, okay. does some fancy stuff on its own, like like caching common queries, right? So that doesn't have to do so much work you know, for the same query over and over again. Um, I think it kind of handles everything. Um, I've kind of just taken it for granted, <laughs> I think. Right. Um, well, I, I think you can, uh, I mean, I, I, it's very possible that I'm completely dead wrong in this. And so if somebody who is listening knows, that would be awesome to be corrected. Um, but I think the difference between database and object caching, so object caching is going to cache your, cache your query. So that query is never even going to hit the database, for example. Mm -hmm. um, with with database querying, with database caching, sorry, you will hit the database, but you're hitting a cached version of the database, or of that of that table. Um, right. So, for example, if we if we do a user query, and we return ten users, uh, with object caching, you're gonna re you're gonna cache the results of that query. Mm. With database caching. You're gonna cache where those results come from. Okay, I don't know. I, th I think um, the the my base my basis for that is simply experience. It has nothing to do with any reading or anything I've ever done. But for example, let's say you've got database caching enabled and you run a query to the to the server. Yeah. And then you modify the database and you run that query again. Your modification may not show. Oh really? Huh. I I don't. That's think why it's kind of. It can be a real pain in the rear for like e-commerce plugins, um, because we will we'll do a query to the database. We'll look we're looking for something. What I mean, whatever it is you're looking for. Maybe you're trying to confirm a payment, confirm, uh, complete an order, and then you run it again. Uh, and it even though it is it is actually successful, it didn't think it was because it came back with cache data. Right. Huh. Interesting. So. Um, so what's like. So I think some people might be confused about um, like what a, a content like the difference between a content delivery network CDN uh, and caching because they're both often like lumped together in terms of but like, they are very different things increasing yeah increasing performance you know it's kind of they're all kind of lumped together do you want to kind of take us through that sure um, so a, a CDN is okay let's let's step back for a second. Let's say that you have, you have files on your server 
image files, CSS, JavaScript, etc. When a page is requested, those files are delivered. They're loaded to the web browser, and they're loaded from your server. So the, the rate at which they can be loaded can be dependent upon your server performance. Mm-hmm. The idea of a, of a CDN, a content delivery network, is taking all of those assets, those resources, and taking them away from your server. So instead of putting the strain on, on your server and having your, let's just, to be extreme, let's say, instead of having your slow server serve those files to the browser, let's have a really fast server serve them instead. Mm-hmm. So one's a, an example that people are probably familiar with, uh, there's a lot of reference to say, hey, let's have Google deliver jQuery instead of WordPress, right? instead of our local server, because Google is much faster. That's exactly what this is. That, I mean, that's simply saying, let's use Google CDN for this version of, of this library. A CDN is saying, let's take all of our images, all of our JavaScript files, all of our CSS, all of these static assets, and let's put them onto their servers that are much more faster and being used only to deliver these files. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the other part of it is... Uh the delivery network part uh, is is really that it that it can be delivered from like a location that's close to you. So if you're say you're visiting Australia and you try to load your site there, well, it's going to try the content delivery network is going to try to to serve you assets from its Australian uh, data center to try to speed things right. up and make things uh, faster. And make things faster, but you know, I've had I've heard various reports about whether that actually works or, or not. Um, so. I think it's going to be very. It's going to be a case by case basis. If you have yeah. a really fast server, a CDN may not do anything yeah. for you. If you're yeah. on a crappy little shared host, a CDN might be your savior. Yeah, um, it, it I th- can I vary the, a lot. Yeah, I think the big thing uh, with CDNs is like if you have rich media files like if you're sort of an mp3s and video files or you know any big stuff like that cdns i think are going to save you big time and and speed things right. up for those people that are in australia or or wherever else um so so what are the other plugins that or what are some of the plugins for wordpress that can can help with caching then uh, there, I think there's three main ones. Uh, there's WP Super Cache, there's W3 Total Cache, and then um, there's APC from Mark Jaquith. Um, the first two are, I'm going to, this is not necessarily entirely correct, but they're kind of end-user plugins in a way. They're, they're plugins that, you're, that are designed to just be put on your site to give you a performance boost. Mm-hmm. Uh, the APC one from Mark Jaquith is more of a... I kind of want to say it's a developer's tool. It's not a plugin that you're just going to put on your site to improve your performance. It is a plugin that you're going to put on your on your site so that you as the developer or other other plugins can make use of it. Right, right. So how does, um, like, so what what is W3? Are you familiar with W3 Total Cache? Like, yeah, I've used it a lot, actually. Okay. Uh, W3 so, Total Cache, uh, it, it does a whole lot of different things. Uh, it is a beast. It's a kitchen sink plugin, is it? 
it is very much a kitchen sink plugin. I mean, it does it does everything from page caching to object caching and database caching to CDNs to uh, more. Um, and WP Supercache is much simpler in that it does not have nearly as many options to configure, um, and it works a little differently. WP Supercache generates static HTML files of right. your pages. Right. Uh, and I, I don't think WP Supercache does anything with database or object caching. Right. Now, uh, we, I mean, we could go, we could talk forever on the different things that W3 Total Cache or WP Supercache allow you to do, and, and, and as well as problems that they can raise. But <laughs> right. I want to be very clear from my personal standpoint. I personally don't, I really don't like cached plugins. Right. Um, I I feel like cache plugins are like patching a hole that should have been repaired. <laughs> right. Kind of like caching is server side stuff. Yeah. And so if you are in a position where you have the ability to configure caching on your server, whether that's because you're on a managed WordPress host, you have your own dedicated server, please do it on the server side. Right. Um. I, I'm sure that, there, there are people would... that will disagree. Yeah. I'm and, not convinced that a plugin like W3 Total Cache or Super Cache will ever get you the kind of caching that true server side configuration will. Right. So so the the APC plugin uh from Mark Jacobs, APC Object Cache it's called. Uh that's an easy one that you can just drop in um to the must use directory or whatever. Um or what I guess you drop it into your content directory, the root of your your content directory, and uh, then it becomes a must use plugin. Um, right. And then that that supposedly boosts uh, your, I mean, it uses the object cache that's uh, built. So into Word, WordPress PHP. has a built-in uh, API called the WP Object Cache. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're not familiar with it, I suggest dumping that into Google and go find it uh, on the Codex. And the WP object cache is used all throughout WordPress to cache, when able, things like user queries, post queries, um, things like that. And so the APC object cache basically modifies the way that object cache stores data. Right. Uh, I can't say too much more because that's kind of where my knowledge with it goes away. But... um, no, I mean that's that's just that's exactly right. And I mean if you don't have the object cache plugin configured, then you don't get that benefit, right? Right. Yeah. So, so one of the one of the crazy things with the WP object cache API, uh, which has some very simple functions to use, like for example, if you do a query and you want to store those results into the into the object cache, you can run WP object cache like uh, WP cache add or WP cache set. And if your server doesn't have cache enabled, it'll take it, but it won't actually cache it. Yeah, um, it'll just ignore it, basically, right? It, it totally ignores it. But uh-huh. it is actually, it's kind of cool because it means that uh, as a developer in your plugins, you can utilize the WP object cache as your main method of storing your complex operations into a cache, and, and WordPress will automatically store that into cache in whatever way is available to it or whatever way it's been told to. Right. I I should clarify. um, I I just said it doesn't do anything. But actually, uh, it will 
um, it will do things for one request. So within the same request, like I just mentioned about oh, the, right. get, the get plugins um, call, that, that mm-hmm. uses the WP object cache to make sure that it doesn't do everything again if get plugins is called a second time in the same right. request. For example, let's say in the in the header of your site, you call, to go to go off of your same example, sure. you call get plugins because you want to list all of the plugins that you're running on this site for the public to view. Mm-hmm. Seems silly, but whatever. Something like that. And then in the footer, you want to do the same thing. With the WP object cache, if you did not have persistent caching enabled, um, that second time it called get plugins, it would pull from the cache from that request. But then if you reloaded the page, it would need to do it again. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess the other thing we just should probably mention is Varnish, uh, which is like the super trendy uh, page, full page caching server. So, so for example, I have uh, Varnish running in front of my Apache MySQL on deliciousbrains.com. That's I just run Varnish in front of that, and I have it configured to, uh, you know, serve serve stuff right out of the cache, right out of the page cache for most most of the URLs, uh, but not things like slash my account or slash checkout, and any request to those pages goes right through to Apache MySQL. So, uh, and that's and that's Varnish what you were saying is, earlier, right, Pippin? Like you prefer that kind of solution over using a plug. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Varnish is crazy it, too, because I've, I've Varnish been, is, is insane. I I've been hacked or hacked, hacker newsed, I guess, or you know, listed on the front page of Hacker News this year, and and Varnish just doesn't even break a sweat. Like it just serves that blog post page, like no problem. Has no problem whatsoever. No, and that's Varnish is. By a lot of, I think I think most or all of the the managed WordPress hosts use Varnish. Yeah, yeah, they run. I know WP Engine does. They don't usually run Apache MySQL like I'm doing, but you know I'm old school and I'm still learning about Nginx, so <laughs> <laughs> I haven't I haven't gotten that far yet. So it is um, continuing on with the idea that. All of this caching stuff is is really server side details. I want to give an example. I feel like I know server side stuff reasonably well. Like I can set up a server. I could I could install a box. I can get all my stuff running. So for the last three years, I've been the person that maintained and ran and set up a server for a company. Mm-hmm. And this is a company that's been very very successful, and they have a hugely a highly trafficked site. And and I always thought I kind of knew what I was doing with things like setting up all the the caching and, and different options. We we had a lot of server trouble. It was struggling for a, a lot long a lot. Uh, every once a week or every other week or so, server would go down because it just got hit too hard, um, or it would just be super sluggish. About three months ago, the company decided to hire a dedicated server guy part time that really knew all of this inside and out. And on a server that has fewer resources than anything I ever worked on, he has made the site 10 times faster and more reliable simply by knowing how to set up Varnish, how to set up Nginx, how to set up all of those different different layers that you will never achieve with something like W3 Total Cache. Right. 
And so if, if, if that's something that is important in terms of overall performance and you really need to do it, in investing in the resources, whether it's a, a dedicated server person to do it or uh, whatever, it can be amazing. Like I, I'm just in awe of what this guy does. Right. I actually I thought I knew what I was doing. I, I I have a similar story actually. I hired someone off of Odesk to set me up on um, Amazon EC2 because I didn't really know the Amazon stuff. Like it's kind of its own thing. The like the Amazon way of doing things. And so I didn't really know what I was doing there. So I got him to do it. And then I kind of just kind of reverse engineered what he had done <laughs> to to try to figure it out. Um, and I, I actually learned a lot that way. So that's another way you can do it. Um, yeah, o- Odesk is a good place to find uh, sysadmins, I guess you would call them. Sure. Um, yeah. Anyways, should probably... Pretty crazy stuff. It is crazy stuff. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love this stuff. Uh, should we wrap There's, up, I guess, sir? Yeah, I think I was just going to throw one more thing up. There is a lot of stuff that you can um, that you need to take into account and consideration when you're developing plugins that can be in, uh, impacted by, by caching. I mean, just for example, e-commerce is, is huge when it comes to caching, like problems with caching plugins mm. and caching systems. Um, but there's a lot of different things that you can do. So if you have any questions about, oh, how do I resolve this kind of issue with a caching plugin, or how do I t- take this scenario into account, let us know. Post questions to the sh- to the sh- uh, to the episode. Uh, more than happy to help out. It's something that we both faced quite a bit. Uh, I've got a perfect tagline for caching. It's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right? <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, <laughs> uh, one other small note, uh, Brad and I will both be speaking at WordCamp Miami, which I think has a couple of tickets left. They may have already sold out. Uh, but so if you want to come by and say hi, WordCamp Miami is an awesome time. It's a great place. It's one of my favorite WordCamps. Um, and it should be a good time. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Can't wait. Yeah, it'll be great. Cool. Right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening, and catch you next time. Thanks, everybody.